we will be looking at the book of Jude for the sermon today. But before we begin, church, let us look at our Old Testament and our New Testament readings. For the Old Testament reading that we will be reading from today is from Jeremiah 23, verses 9 through 22. Let us Again, give our undivided attention to the reading of God's most holy word, especially in light of the context that Jeremiah has as we merge into the book of Jude. Lord's word says this in chapter 23 of Jeremiah, verse 9. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine. Because of the Lord and because of his holy words... For the land is full of adulterers, because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall, for I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all of the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you and everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart. They say no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Let us now turn to the book of Jude, second to last book of the New Testament, and we'll be reading from verses 1 through 7. Jude is only one chapter. We'll be looking at the first seven verses. The Lord's word says this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated 
for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Father God, these words that we have before us, your holy words, Father, they are difficult words. They are difficult words, words to hear. They are difficult words to comprehend, Father, but I pray that you would allow us, Father, as your people to hear these words, to understand them, to apply them, to recognize, Lord, the holiness and the reverence, Lord, behind your most holy name. For both in your Old Testament and New Testament of your most holy word, Father, you have shown that there is a righteous judgment, Lord, for the sins that are committed, Father. This points us to Christ, Father. We're reminded of that. I pray, Lord, that those who know Christ see Christ through the midst of this. And I pray, Father, if there's any in this room that does not know Christ, that they would see very clearly their immense need for Christ and Christ alone. We thank you again. Help me now to proclaim the word, your word, Father, to your people in a way that is faithful and acceptable to you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> After that, right? It's kind of got to... We have to have a little bit of a lift up from that, right? Today I'll be uh, beginning what I hope to be a three-part sermon series on the book of Jude that I will be Lord willing uh, teaching over the next several months. And my goal is to try and preach a section every uh, three months or so uh, over, again, the next uh, nine to twelve months. And uh, as I began preparation for this sermon series, there was really no particular reason at least in the beginning, for my choosing of the book of Jude, other than it was uh, really a rather pretty short book, uh, very concise, containing only one chapter, thus making it a very good selection to do a sermon series uh, over a complete book of the Bible, being I only preach uh, every couple of months. But after selecting this book and and really looking into Jude and beginning the in-depth study of its background and contents, I very quickly realized that the makeup of this book has some very amazing implications applications, and ramifications, which you probably can already guess by the readings of both the Old Testament and New Testament sections. So as I began studying Jude, I immediately began seeing the direct applications to the church today. This book is completely focused on the theme of false teaching and protecting the church from false teachers. In fact, Jude not only warns against this false teaching, he goes on to describe the destruction that awaits those who engage in such false teaching. And he does this by drawing on and connecting some of the most destructive Old Testament judgments that we find in the scriptures. Therefore, making it imperative that we pay very close attention and that we understand the nature of these quote-unquote false teachers that Jude describes to us, so that we may deal with them quickly and appropriately. For they have no place, obviously no place, in the church of Christ. So let's begin by looking at the context and background of the book of Jude so that we're able to uh, properly understand its message 
uh, to us today and to properly apply it as well. Jude's epistle uses a a common three-part structure that was typical of Greco-Roman letters in this time. It begins with a greeting in verses 1 and 2, merges to the body of the letter in verses 3 through 23, and it concludes with a doxology in verses 24 through 25. Uh, Also note that Jude closely parallels that of 2 Peter, as these two authors certainly redacted from one another, uh, borrowed from one another. Uh, Though it is uncertain exactly who the original author was, who borrowed from who, most scholars, though, believe that Jude is the primary author, and it, in fact, was 2 Peter who borrowed from Jude. There's lots of evidence to to lead us to believe that Jude was the original author of this, and if you do take the time and look at 2 Peter, you will see very, very close parallels uh, between the two. Uh, The body of Jude, throughout the body of the text, verses uh, 3 through 23, lays out a series of proof texts that reference the Old Testament writings Uh, Jewish literature, and also apostolic prophecy, all of which both reveal and predict the destruction of the heretics that Jude uh, Jude addresses in his book. Each of these sections of Jude displays how the text applies and how each find fulfillment in the destruction of these false teachers. Needless to say that the entire theme of the book of Jude is the extraordinarily stern warning against false teachers, the application of their destruction, and the need for the people of God to protect against their infiltration into the church. The book of Jude was most likely written sometime between A.D. and uh, 55 and A.D. 75, but Jude's audience, however, is not quite as easy to identify. Jude's letter does not give any precise indication of either the identity of his readers nor his readers' whereabouts. But through the acceptance of Jude's relationship to Christ, being the brother of Christ, the most probable audience was the early Palestinian church. But regardless of that, fortunately, uh, that, uh, even though that information is not given to us, uh, we uh, do not need it to understand the context and message of Jude's uh, teaching, because Jude's writing and message may well have been written to almost any community in which Greek was spoken in the mid-first century. Uh, It is most likely that a location near Antioch was a very probable destination, but again, the epistle of Jude brings us into contact with the early church in a setting that was somewhat similar to ours in the uh, things that the Western church is dealing with today. Um, And this makes it very, very uh, applicable to the issues that we see infiltrating our church today. All this to say that the things that Jude was dealing with in that time, the things that we deal with in our time, in many ways are no different. Jude's direct audience, the message, its contents apply to all of churches, all of Christ's churches throughout all ages. So let's look more closely now at each particular verse, beginning in verse 1, as we look at the direct reading of Jude 1. Jude's epistle begins, as most letters do, written in the, uh, the time that would have with the author introducing himself and establishing his authority with his audience. The author identifies himself as Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James. Verse 1. The name Jude comes from the name Judah, the southern part of Israel, and was uh, the Hebrew word for praise. Jude was a very common name during the first century, and though there is some debate over exactly which Jude was the author, the evidence, again, is overwhelming in support of this being the Jude, brother of Christ. Some have suggested, however, 
that if Jude was in fact Jesus's brother, then he would have identified himself as such, since the typical greeting at the beginning of the epistle is largely about the author identifying himself to his audience and establishing his credibility. But upon closely looking at the text and upon close study of the text, we're able to see what Jude states in the beginning of the epistle is both very intentional and actually quite extraordinary. For though he was the actual brother of the Lord, Jude instead chooses to identify himself as, quote, a servant of Jesus Christ, foregoing the name that he certainly could have used with authority, being the brother of Christ. And he also uh, directs himself to being the brother of James, hence uh, solidifying his credibility. This statement would have been instantly recognized by Jude's audience. They knew Jude. They had a personal relationship with him. They knew who he was. They knew, in fact, that he was the brother of Christ. But instead of using an exalting title such as, again, the brother of the Lord, Jude takes his status and demotes himself as a servant, only using his brother James to identify himself, thus showing us his heart already in the beginning. And his readers, again, would have very, very um, easily identified exactly what he was doing by foregoing that title. So in the first few words of Jude's writing, he already is revealing his state of humility, and he already is exalting the name of Christ. This practice was also very common throughout the New Testament. Jude was not the only one to do this in the beginning words of his letter. Look, for example, at Titus 1.1, where Paul begins his epistle by stating the following. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Or in Revelation 1.1, where John refers to himself as one of God's servants that received his message from God. The point being that Jude deliberately begins his book this way to identify himself as a slave agent of Christ, as many other authors have also done. Thus showing the reverence that the readers are to have in not only hearing the words that are to follow, but in carrying and living out the commands that are to follow. It's very important that we catch this church, for the words of Jude are very heavy ones, and we have to understand what he's doing in these beginning verses by setting the stage and exalting God and Christ to the highest extremes. In the second part of verse 1, Jude refers to his readers as, quote, those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We would do well in looking at uh, this verse to take our time in carefully understanding the description of Jude's audience, for the implications are very much immense, as you probably already see and will further see. There is a typical pattern of introduction that we see in all of the New Testament epistles, church, and Jude is following a similar one. These introductions, and if you were to go and take the time and read through the New Testament and take your time in these introductions, which we usually skip over, if you were to take your time and intentionally go through, you would see typically that these introductions do three things. One, they establish the author's identity and credibility. Two, they establish and emphasize the election of God's people. And three, they provide a greeting of grace, peace, and love. To further this point, let me just uh, take some time to look at some other New Testament epistles that follow the same format to make sure that we're all on the same page and that you are seeing exactly uh, what I am seeing and how this is laid out. 
Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you'd like to turn there, you can. However, what I would advise that you do is listen very, very carefully to these words so that you can see this flow and you can see the words that are being portrayed and the message that is being portrayed in these greetings. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Look now also at how Paul begins his letter to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Again, listen carefully to this theme and the words that are used. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lastly, let's take the time to look at just one more. Though there are many, many other examples, I will choose just one more, this time reading from Titus, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The last one time that you pay very close attention to the word of the Lord in the introduction of Titus. Paul a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages, began, and at the proper time manifest in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, I could go on and on, church. I truly could if I were to go and choose several other New Testament epistles in showing this point. Nearly every epistle, feel free to take time on this Lord's Day and go and check this for yourself, nearly every epistle has some form of this three-part structure. One, identification of the author. Two, reassurance of the election of God's people. And three, a general blessing to the audience. And it's with this that I want to say, church, with this theme that's so blatantly clear in a majority of the New Testament epistles, that the election of God's people is not some sort of theological position that one can take based on his or her preferred reading of God's word. The election of God's people is something that is clearly taught clearly taught in Scripture. And though it may be difficult to understand, and we have to, we have to recognize that, church, it is a difficult doctrine. And, and it's often difficult to accept the doctrine of election for the implications that are there. All of us who hold to this doctrine certainly have struggled with it in some way, shape, or form. But regardless of our struggles, we must be faithful to believe and to hold to and to teach that which Scripture teaches. And what you find in most of the New Testament epistle introductions, again, is that each of the authors begin their letters with a brief statement and reminder about 
their election in Christ, about their security in God, and about their preservation as the people of God. It was common in the Old Testament, and it is seen clearly in each of the New Testament letters. There are many verses where people go to in uh, describing, understanding, and explaining the doctrines of God. But one of the things that I found uh, that was very interesting in my study of the book of Jude is you actually see almost every New New Testament epistle beginning uh, with this statement. Scripture teaches this doctrine, and when we properly understand the doctrine of election church, as Jude's audience, as Paul's audience, as the other New Testament epistle audiences would most certainly have understood, this doctrine, in fact, brings great comfort and peace to the people of God. For why else would these authors begin their statement of identifying themselves, giving blesses, uh, giving blessings and giving comfort to them, and then adding in this statement? For church, our calling in God is an eternal calling, and nothing, no nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. It is a wonderful doctrine, but most importantly, uh, most importantly, it is a biblical doctrine. Moving on to verses uh, 3 and 4. It is in these verses that Jude gives uh, us his reason for why he writes his letter. In verse 3, Jude states that he desired to share with his readers about their, quote, common salvation. But instead, instead of sharing with them about the common salvation, which was his intent, He felt the necessity to write to them to contend or fight for the faith that was, quote, delivered to the saints. He had intentions. He desired deeply to pursue those intentions, but something was so pressing that Jude had to default from those and instead write to them uh, what he does write to us in the book of Jude, that we are to, quote, contend for the faith. The term that's uh, used here, beloved, in verse 3, indicates that Jude's love uh, of those uh, whom he is writing was, was very eminent uh, uh, and very prominent, and that it also pointed to the fact that they are uh, loved by God as his children. And the importance of this theme, quote, protecting the church, um, uh, becomes the central focus of Jude's letter as he warns the beloved people of God to be careful uh, that they would not fall into the traps of these false teachers. It was a warning to them uh, out of a concern to them. Again, Jude's original intent was to write about our common salvation, common referring to something that was held in common amongst uh, the people of God. And the Greek word that was used for salvation in verse 3 is really better translated as security or preservation. Again, referring to this eternal election of God's chosen, which becomes a major theme throughout all of Jude's text. Thus, the phrase could be most likely best understood as, quote, our common preservation as the people of God. And though Jude had been planning and preparing to write about their common preservation in the faith, verse 4, he instead felt compelled to discuss the need for safety from these false teachers that had, quote, secretly crept into the church. He implores his readers to contend earnestly for this faith, And the verb contend earnestly uh, is really a a word that's found only here in the New Testament. We don't see it anywhere else in the New Testament. And it was used to describe athletes in competition who were striving with great intensity for victory. And this, therefore, displays the immense importance of Jude's message as he is encouraging, encouraging them with very strong words that they must fight diligently, arduously uh, for the truth of God's word. The fact that Jude was so compelled to divert from his original and intended writing topic 
and that he uses such strong verbiage in exhorting his readers to action should cause the people of God to see the immense importance involved in protecting the church from such false teachers. And it's in light of this strong command that the entire contents of the book of Jude are based. For Jude exhorts his readers to not only stay true to the faith that was given to them, but to earnestly protect the congregation from these false teachers. And since this faith was, quote, once for all delivered to the saints, every Christian, not just church leaders, pastors, and teachers, every Christian is to defend biblical truth from the erroneous teachings of false teachers. It is a command, church, given to the people of God. Moving on in verse 4. Verse 4 begins by stating that certain men have crept in unnoticed, meaning that certain men have crept into the church unnoticed. This phrase, have crept in, translates from one word and presents a picture of a thief quietly and through great planning, attempting to slip into the side door so that they may steal. The imagery that the text creates is that of these false teachers using stealth and secrecy within the church in order to deceive other believers. But there is no mistaking both the conduct and the intention of these men that Jude describes, for they are utterly and undeniably ungodly, having a complete irreverence for God, having no reverence for God. And church, I want to remind you not to grow weary of church church liturgy that is done for the sole purpose of properly revering the God of the universe. For a Christian that shows no reverence for God is in a very dangerous place. Just look at the ramification of Jude's words. Any church that comes to worship God with little to no reverence of this God is in a dangerous, dangerous position. For our God is a holy God, and he deserves to be worshipped the way that he has commanded in the scriptures. It is not up to man to devise his own crafty ways to worship God because he believes that it will help bring in more church attendees and or make his church more seeker-friendly. Sunday is the Lord's Day, as commanded in Scripture. And on the Lord's Day, we must be careful to properly follow the commands and implications of Scripture and the worshiping of our great God. These are hard words, church, but I say them because this is what Jude alludes to. This is what the Scriptures teach, and we must be faithful in the teaching of them the hearing of them, the applying of them. So please hear me, church, as I'm saying this. Let me clarify that I'm not saying that just because one does not properly revere God due to their ignorance or misunderstanding, though that's on them and they must do something to be faithful to know these things, there is a personal responsibility, that the consequences prescribed in Jude immediately apply to them because of that. For one must learn how to properly reveal, revere, and worship God. It must be taught to them. In fact, this is actually one of the primary ministries of the church, to both engage in and teach the proper reverence of God. Therefore, Jude is discussing the behavior of those who purposely and intentionally, who purposely and intentionally go against the teachings of Scripture for the sake of their own evil desires and gains. As verse 4 states, these individuals change God's grace into lewdness or sensuality, meaning behavior that is completely lacking in moral restraint. For God's grace has become their reason for their sin, according to Jude. 
Though it is clear that their true reason is because they do not possess a true and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus they reject God's authority as master, and they rely on their own knowledge and interpretation of the faith to reason for their behavior. They attempt to persuade others also to act in the same manner. Their perverted theology matches their perverted behavior, and their perverted behavior matches their perverted teachings. Therefore, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, it is the job of the preserved saints, which is us, to properly learn and pass down the accurate teachings and proper implications of the scriptures of God. And I hope, I hope that you're reminded by Jude's teaching why we at Emmaus are so careful in particular in the teaching and preaching of God's most holy word. For we must be faithful in properly maintaining the teachings of the saints and therefore protecting the church from those who wish to distort the true word of God. Next in verse 5, Jude cites three examples from the Old Testament, uh, from Old Testament history that displays God's judgment on those who intentionally distort the word of God and also live contrary to it. For God will deal properly with these, quote, false teachers, as Jude shows us with the following Old Testament examples. And as we begin to read those, church, notice carefully the continued theme of election that permeates each one of the following Old Testament stories. For there is a strong theme in Jude's book, as we have already seen, that revolves around election. Those predestined for salvation and those that God, out of his divine wisdom, has left in their reprobate state for destruction. So the first example that Jude describes is that of Exodus, the Exodus generation, whom God rescued from slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land, Exodus 3.8. But that generation, church, when we go and read the story, except for Caleb and Joshua, perished because of their rebellion. There was no mercy. They perished because of their, re- of their rebellion. For Jude tells us that those who did not believe perished. Church, the judgments of God are very serious and a very real thing. God's punishment is not something to take lightly. And the contrast that Jude makes in verse 5 further makes it very clear that there are only two types of people. Those who will receive the judgments of God, for they were designated for destruction, and those whom will receive the mercy of God, for they were predestined for salvation. A difficult teaching. A difficult teaching, but one that is taught in Scripture, and one that, in fact, Jude here is clarifying to the people of God, and we must be careful in clearly understanding Jude's teaching. Moving on in verse 6, the second example of God's judgment or rebellion is given. As the fallen angels of Genesis 6 are described, for after leaving their dwelling place in the heavens, they rebelled against the authority of God, and therefore receive their due penalty. According to 2 Peter 2.4, these fallen angels are imprisoned in uh, a place called Tartarus, which is translated as uh, hell in 2 Peter. And this uh, uh, showing them being held under darkness and awaiting their final judgment in the lake of fire, Matthew 25.41, but also being consistent with 2 Peter 2.4 and also with what Jude is stating here in verse 6. In verse 6, we're also reminded again of the seriousness of God's judgment, even with the angels, on those who rebelled against his ways. 
for disbelief in the commandments and authority of God must face the repercussions of such actions. Be reminded also, church, that the destruction that Jude is describing here is a destruction that was awaiting once all of us, every single one of us. For all of us had fallen short of the glory of God. We were dead in our sins and we were without hope. But through Christ and God's divine mercy, we have been saved to a living hope. It is good. I know for me, church, when I was going through reading this, I had to take a break and go and read the hope that we have. But one of the things that we'll see in Jude, and we've already seen, is the greatness of God's grace and the mercy that he has. Next in verse 7, in Jude's third and final example, Jude reminds his readers about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. For these people pursued unnatural sexual encounters, especially homosexuality. And because of their wicked actions and depraved hearts, God destroyed these cities with fire and brimstone. Again, serving as another extreme example of God's judgments for sin. Jude's point in citing these three examples, church, is to remind believers that God judges sin. God judges sin, and rightly so. And if left alone without God's intervention, man would destroy himself through sin, only to await God's judgment of sin. And I hope, I hope, church, that you have seen the gravity of what is being portrayed in God's word through the book of Jude. For these Old Testament stories are not ones that I chose to attempt to make application to Jude's message about destruction and judgment. These were Jude's. These were Jude's examples that he uses as examples to show us God's judgments. These three Old Testament stories, most of which we were, uh, were all very familiar with, are explicitly connected to those whom Jude says directly and intentionally live contrary to the word of God and teach others to do the same. We must be reminded of exactly who Jude is tying these stories to. He is saying, look at these destructions. And he is tying those destructive judgment stories to those who live and intentionally deny the word of God um, as they come in uh, infiltrating into the church. The Christian faith is a serious thing. It is not to be taken lightly, for it was Christ himself who told his followers in Luke 14, 25 through 27, that they must be willing to leave everything and should carefully count the cost of being his disciple. For to follow Christ is to follow him in all aspects of our lives, especially, especially our life within the church. So in light of Jude's message, In the first seven verses of his book, there are three applications that I would like to draw from this church. Three applications. Application number one. What we believe as the people of God is immensely important. What we believe as the people of God is immensely important. Verse three. Christianity is not something to be left to the culture to change and to adapt to the surrounding society as seen fit by pastors, leaders, or anyone else for that matter. If that were so, Jude would not have been so convicted in his writing that he was forced to abandon his original preparations of the church about our common salvation to instead exhort the church that we need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is it then that he is telling us to fight for if it is something that just ebbs and flows throughout the cultures, and the times. There is something that Jude is telling explicitly to the people of God that they must fight for. 
that the church not become corrupt. So this statement that Jude makes has two massive implications. Two massive implications. Implication number one, that there is a distinct and structured, quote, faith that was handed down to the disciples and thus to the church. That there is a very structured and distinct teaching that was handed down. And two, that we are to fight diligently, earnestly, in keeping this, quote, unquote, faith and teaching. That we are to fight diligently for it. Church theology matters. It matters deeply. What the Bible teaches about God and salvation is of immense importance, and anyone who believes and teaches otherwise is ignorant of what the Bible teaches. One cannot simply take a stance on biblical theology simply because he or she is too lazy to study it for himself or herself. We are all called to study the Word of God. It is a responsibility that every child of God must accept. It is what God has given to us. For we must study the scriptures to show ourselves approved, 2 Timothy 2, 15. And we are to know what true and proper biblical teaching is, lest we accept any form of false preaching or false teaching on God's holy word. It makes me wonder, church, how many people would be rescued from false teaching if they themselves knew what false teaching looked like. There is a personal obligation, a personal responsibility that we all have to study and know the word of God. So Jude clearly exhorts believers to not be moved away from the proper teachings that were given to them. And they were to protect with great fidelity, with great fidelity, these teachings at all costs. So church, we must know this faith. We must study this faith. We as the people of God have a responsibility to know and implement this faith in all aspects of our lives. And this leads me to my second point that we must not know and teach these truths on a personal level, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, perhaps even more importantly, on a corporate level. For point of application number two, what we believe and teach as a church is immensely, immensely important. Brothers and sisters, Reformed theology is not some sort of flavored exegetical approach that Emmaus and other like-minded churches are based upon. Reformed theology is, in my opinion, in my opinion, the frontline defense against the teachings that Jude tells the church to stand against. That is not to say that if one does not belong to a Reformed church, hear me carefully on this as well, that if one does not belong to a Reformed church, that their church is in error and in danger of the judgments that Jude lays out. But it could. But it is to say that churches must be very careful as to what they believe corporately and to what they preach corporately. It is not something to be taken lightly, for God has given something to us that we are to take very seriously and to have great fidelity with, as Jude has laid out. For the Word of God, as Jude reminds us, has distinct, proper, and acceptable doctrines that must be protected. So, the question that is asked may even be going on in your head now is, well, then what are these doctrines, if it is so clear and simple? The answer to this question is very simple as well. They are the doctrines they are laid out and taught in the scriptures. In other words, they are the doctrines that are biblical. What this means is that they can be clearly found in the proper study and application of the word of God. Proper study and application of word of, and word of God. I will say, church, that there are some things that just are not clear enough 
to land solid on. And there are great men and women who do have uh, different opinions on how some things should be translated. But there are things that have been taught today that we hold to here at Emmaus and other churches hold firmly to, uh, oftentimes referred to as Reformed theology, that the scriptures say are non-negotiable. They are non-negotiable. And they are not to be changed or altered. And it is up to us to be faithful to identify these doctrines. Hence the need for in-depth study and teaching on God's word. Let me give an example of this. One that is extreme, but it is a very clear example in our culture today. Because as many of you know, there's a large movement in our culture today around the topic of homosexuality and the church. In fact, I just went away to a Christian camp this last week, and one of the things that I did was I had a workshop in which I did Q&A with teenagers um, who, who came up to this camp, and I allowed them to ask questions. They gave me note cards beforehand, and I wrote them down so they could anonymously ask them. And though I thought there would be a lot more of them who would uh, put these questions out there, a big theme that developed was, was around the area of gender, homosexuality, identity, um, etc., And I had the chance to be able to speak into this because they were under the assumption, many of them, that the Bible teaches that it is okay. And praise the Lord that I got to stand in front of youth and correct them on their erroneous theologies, but also spend a week with them and love them uh, so that they knew I was there not to just, you know, teach false, um, uh, to, to correct their false doctrines. However, many men and women, as I've already said, have attempted to make a case that the Bible supports and teaches that homosexuality is acceptable. But when one looks at the scriptures, you come to see that clearly, clearly, they teach that homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord and utterly unacceptable. See Leviticus 18.22, Romans 1.26-27, Genesis 2.24, just to start with, just to start with, these are clear teachings that it is very difficult to um, twist them to mean something other than what they say, uh, that being that homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. So this serves as a great example of what Jude is teaching. For a church leader to stand in the pulpit of God and to teach that something that is so clearly contrary to the Word of God as being acceptable meets all of Jude's criteria of those whom have crept in and therefore the destruction that awaits them. They should tremble in their state of destruction before the Lord to stand in front of the people of God and to teach such a false doctrine. And again, this is just one example of a type, of a type of false doctrine that has the potential of infiltrating the church. According to Jude, anyone who believes and lives in a way that is contrary to the word of God and teaches others to do the same is in danger of the judgments that he connects from the Old Testament. The main point being that there are those who will attempt to infiltrate into the church that will possess beliefs and behaviors that are contrary to the word of God and will then attempt to teach others their false doctrines. Therefore, the church must be ever so diligent in not just properly and accurately teaching the word of God, but also to properly deal with those who come into the church with actions and beliefs that are contrary to the word of God, for to live in contradiction of God's word and to then teach others, whether it be through word or action, to do the same is to await what Jude reveals to us as God's worst judgments. Therefore, church biblical doctrine and church discipline must be at the core of all faithful churches. 
Biblical doctrine and church discipline must be at the core of all faithful churches that adhere and contend for the faith that has been passed down since the time of Christ. And we should not be surprised when such men or women come and come along, for this has been an issue ever since sin entered into the world and the story of redemption began. For the people of God have always been under attack from the evil one and those of a depraved mind. It was no different in the time of Jude, and it is no different in our day and age. We must study and know the scriptures personally, and we must be faithful in passing down these truths corporately, for God has called us to be faithful to his word. And those who deny the power and authority of God are in danger of the awesome judgments of God. And this leads me to my third And my final point, that the worst of God's punishments have been reserved for those who intentionally live contrary to the true teachings of Scripture and teach others to do the same. Let me read that one one more time. It's a little bit longer. That the worst of God's punishments have been reserved for those who intentionally live contrary to the true teachings of Scripture and teach others to do the same. Church, the penalty for sin is death. No transgression against the word of God, no transgression against the word of God can go unpunished. Out of God's righteousness and who he is, all must be paid for and accounted for. This is the teachings of the law. The law revealed that no man was capable of upholding the necessities of the law in order to maintain righteousness before God. It was only Christ and Christ alone who was capable of such righteousness. This is why only in Christ's church do we have hope. If we don't understand why Christ is so central to every page of Scripture, then we don't understand the Scriptures themselves. Because this is what they reveal, that only in Christ do we have hope. But for those outside of Christ, there is punishment. It is the punishment that we all deserve outside the saving power of Christ. We all deserve it. And for those whom God has determined to leave in their state of sin out of his divine wisdom, their unatoned sins will be, they must be accounted for. For those in Israel who did not believe after the Exodus were destroyed by God. And the angels that rebelled against the authority of God have been cast into Tartarus, awaiting the complete and final judgment of God. And those in Sodom and Gomorrah that openly indulged in sexual immorality were burned up under the righteous judgments of God. Church sins have consequences. The judgments of God are a very real thing. Hell is a very real place. And God will one day return to properly judge the entire world and to correct all that has gone awry ever since that fateful day in the garden. Therefore, we should never take sin lightly. And we must be ever so careful to properly exegete the word of God. And we must be diligent to teach and preach the word of God with precision and accuracy. For the teachings that were delivered to the saints are the true and accurate teachings of the word of God. And so let us all be diligent to study these teachings in order to show ourselves approved before God and to protect the church of God. And church, let us be reminded, it's so important that we are reminded with a sermon like this, that it is only in Christ, in Christ alone, that we have hope. What Jude reveals to us 
is our desperate, desperate, desperate need for Christ to save. We must protect the church. We must uh, protect those doctrines. But it's only through the power of Christ that even those things are done. So in closing, I thought that it would be very fitting to read to you a section from the hymn in Christ Alone. For again, Jude reminds us that our sins deserve the wrath of God. And His punishments, they are just. But for those in Christ, we have received atonement for our sins. The wrath that was due to us has been paid for. As the hymn states, and I would encourage you to pay close attention to these words too, for they are so true and they are so reassuring. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all and all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. May we stand firm, church, in the love of Christ, holding true to his teachings, all while protecting his church, for we serve an awesome, holy, and righteous God. Let's pray. Father God, help us, Lord, to understand your scriptures. Help us to be encouraged, Father, in Christ. For there are times such as today when we read your word, Lord, and it is hard. It's hard to understand these doctrines. It is hard to understand the the judgments that are there. They make sense. Sin must be atoned for, Father, must be paid for only in Christ. Outside of Christ, how can these things be atoned for? I pray, Lord, for those who struggle with these doctrines, that they would be convicted, Lord, uh, to your word and by your word, Father. Not in a response because they don't like it, Father, but it would be a submission to you, recognizing, Lord, that there is great freedom in seeing what your word proclaims and teaches, Father. So give us all wisdom. Help us to hold to your word. Help us to stand for your word, Father. Help us to be a church, Lord, that proclaims you. Be with us all, Father, for you are an awesome, awesome God. And it's in the name of Christ and Christ alone. Amen.